and so people really need to understand not just the con European context, but the more global context of what regulatory changes which are upcoming are going to have an effect on our business in the next, you know, three to five years. It creates a lot of panic in terms of how can we find the right candidates or the candidates with experience to help us navigate these changes. An additive in foods, for example. And you think titanium oxide. That sounds kind of dangerous, right? It doesn't sound super healthy, but that was completely fine for many years. You're listening to the Non-Sub Talent Show, a podcast about recruitment, HR, life, and everything in between. Brought to you by international recruitment consultancy, Non-Sub Consulting. Welcome to, to the Non-Sub Talent Show. Today, I am joined by Ben Thompson and Abed Kanji, two of our most senior recruiters, basically responsible for driving the growth of our chemical division. Abed set up this division back in the day. They've worked in the space for about 13 years, made over a thousand placements. So hopefully they know what they're talking about. Welcome. Welcome, guys. Hello. So the first question I have for you is um, basically fill me in on what, what reach is. You guys are talking about reach reg regulation. I'm not a specialist recruiter. I'm not a chemist. I don't know what you're talking about. Tell me. I could probably take the lead on this one for sure. I'll, I'll give an overview and do my typical just summary. But uh, when it comes to detail, uh, Ben's got an eye for it. And I actually think even though we hired you into it, you probably, you definitely know much more about this space than, than me. You're the expert and I'm like the secondary expert. So um, we'll let you take lead after. But um, yeah, reach regulation is something that the chemical sector is really trying to do to mirror the pharmaceutical sector in terms of regulating a lot of the substances that we touch um, every day. We look at each day. We're in regular contact with each day, whether it's, um, you know, your phone or the mouse that I'm holding that can be coated in a particular substance, the textiles that we wear. Um, a lot of these substances have dangerous chemicals uh, within them. And so uh, it was under the European Union with uh, ECHA, European Chemicals Agency, they decided to um, put some regulations in place. And REACH essentially stands for registrations, uh, evaluations, authorizations of chemical and hazardous substances. Um, so it's effectively started out in Europe um, and over the last couple of years, um, we've seen it expand into areas like Korea um, and Turkey um, and China, uh, basically. But um, something that was implemented in 2007, but thought of in 2001. So it's been something that's quite long in the making, really. Okay, very, very long time to come to grips with this. Ben, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think it's good to put some like context and history to why reach regulation actually came into play. And as I've said, you know, it's, it's things which people don't even assume are chemicals, for example, that you're constantly coming into contact with. And the European Union actually had no way of regulating it themselves. Essentially, each country had their own um, means of evaluating the substance and whether they could put it on the market or not. And what that meant within the European Union and the European Economic Area was that every country did something different and every country had a different opinion. So being able to basically bring it all together and harmonize it across the European Union um, was actually meant for companies that they were able to you know, distribute their, their products or substance a lot easier not have to deal with so much red tape and so many hurdles. 
Um, but it also meant that with the harmonization and introduction, sorry, harmonization of European regulations and the introduction of REACH, they mean that things became a bit more stringent and a bit more difficult. Um, you know, so it has been very interesting to see how it's evolved from its initial conception to present day, essentially. Okay. So essentially, it's about, like you're saying, harmonizing everything, uh, harmonizing the regulations across the broader landscape to essentially protect us with the chemicals we come into contact with as consumers, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, even today, I think, um, like, substances are constantly putting on the bat being put on a ban list and today there was a uh, titanium oxide for example which for a very long time has been used as um, an additive in foods for example and you think titanium oxide that sounds kind of dangerous yeah. right <laughs> it doesn't sound super healthy but that was completely fine for many years um to have that as a food additive now i don't know exactly what it was used for in a food additive you know i'm not a scientist i'm not an expert on these specifics um, but, you know, it was very interesting to see uh, like a metal or an oxidized metal, which can be used in food and people would be consuming it uh, on a daily basis. And, you know, they just kind of move these things into, um, you know, hazardous lists or lists where basically the, the substance has been banned for a particular use. And then companies have to go back to the drawing board in terms of research and development and then come up with an alternative substance that they might be able to use. Mm. So, for example, a nice example of this is with M&Ms. So between the 70s and 80s, for example, you used to get red M&Ms, uh, and you do again these days, but during that period, sorry, that period they, they were actually banned because of a particular uh, ingredient used in the red dye. So yeah, and, and so one that made all, all the kids hyperactive, right? Yeah, exactly. And, then, yeah. and basically what happened was they had to come up with a substitute product um, or yeah. substance, substance that they could use in the red dye. So I just wanted to thought it might be good to kind of put out there a real world example because people aren't really going to know what titanium oxide is, but yeah, a lot of people. Do. No, no, no. That's um, that that is a really great example. And something that um, quickly comes to mind for me is and something that I've been hearing from actually a lot of recruiters in our different departments is regulatory change, um, maybe not even quite as big as this. <clears throat> it creates um a lot of panic in terms of how can we find the right candidates or the candidates with experience to help us navigate these changes and i obviously um there was a lot of hiring needed this is why you guys built this division i think you said you were the first re recruiters in europe to be really focusing on these candidates uh, so from your side uh, what was the what was the initial effect on hiring how can companies um uh, deal with these regulatory changes when theoretically there's no candidates with the skills because this is a brand new thing, right? How did you guys uh, navigate this? It's quite funny, actually. So um, I was doing regulatory recruitment for the pharmaceutical sector prior to setting this up. In 2009, that's when we settled up regulatory for chemicals. And um, I was trying to explore, talk to my, the clients I was finding who were advertising jobs. And what was quite funny is people that are moving into these positions were commercial salespeople, business development people. It was bizarre. Okay. I saw that on at least 30, 40 occasions. Um, not chemists, basically. And ultimately, yeah, these the positions were then re-advertised because they've put people into a role where internally, that is, they've just moved them across to say, we've got this position, we need some help, go do, go do it. 
and they would have sold the chemical substance or the raw material and that's why they they're involved but you need to be a chemist if you're talking specifically about um chemical regulation yeah right so how, how does a sales guy evolve into a, a chemist how, how does that work yeah it just didn't work so what was happening was you found these <laughs> i would talk to these sales guys to try and get information who were in they were like the reach manager you can see on their cv what they're doing before and they didn't know what they were talking about somewhere along the lines it's not worked for all of these businesses and then they've re-advertised to hire a chemist or these commercial people have done okay in the role because nobody knew what to do with these regulations there was no there was a bit of guidance but it was new right there mm-hmm. was, people didn't know what to do um so yeah that just sort of fizzled out i would say by 2011 you saw this maybe parts of 2012 you saw that sort of fizzle out in terms of candidates coming through as applicants for other positions and also specifications stating chemistry rather than you know some exposure to chemical substances basically but yeah it was quite quite funny i think that also gave a demonstration of um how companies were not taking it seriously so if you look at how the regulations operate you had a pre-registration in 2000 ben you have to remind me of the dates i don't know if i can Um, (laughs) you had a pre-registration in 2007 and then i think you had the another registration in 2010 i can't remember so far back so a lot of people missed their pre-registrations. Right. Uh, because they couldn't get the right people, you mean? Yeah, they weren't really taking it seriously, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, they for the 20, I think it's the 2010 regulations then, um, sorry, deadlines, people then started taking it a bit more seriously. Yeah, I think from uh, a company perspective, a lot, of, a lot of companies didn't realize the importance of or even the repercussions of not actually meeting the deadline, you know, so it could incur huge fines. And the whole idea was that their products could become safer. And that it also, in terms of, yeah, there was financial repercussions for them not meeting the deadlines because they get fined, but it would actually minimize repercussions for, you know, say if someone gets poisoned, for example, you know, mm-hmm. maybe eventually suing that company. So it was actually in their interest for a variety of reasons why they should actually register their, their substances and i think you know when it comes to the recruitment of the time you know there were like historic rela- uh, historic regulations at a local level that people were working in as well but you know this became an overarching thing so companies they, who were taking it seriously were scrambling like Abby said to find them wherever they could you know whether it was a chemist whether it was a sales commercial person or even taking people from uh, other sectors as well. So, I mean, even in 2015, a couple of years before the deadline, when I started recruiting, I remember one of the first jobs I was recruiting for, they said, yeah, we could take someone from the pharmaceutical sector. That's no problem at all, which is, absolutely, is actually something which has changed quite drastically in the last kind of seven and a half years I've been doing this kind of recruitment. Okay. And, and how has that changed then? Um, now we're seeing the companies really have to look to, to the future and what's actually going to happen with the regulation. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of substances getting added to lists, getting banned for either you know, total bans or bans for certain uses. And a lot of companies now, they, they do actually need very experienced people who know the regulation inside and out, 
who know um, which like regulations as well. As I said, you know, lots of countries are following the European model in terms of the registration and evaluation of chemical substances. Um, and so people really need to understand not just the co European context, but the more global context of, okay, what regulation, cha what regulatory changes which are upcoming are going to have an effect on our business in the next, you know, three to five years, basically, so they can mitigate risk to the business as much as possible. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, now they are looking for, and always looking for very experienced people, but you know, even within the last five years, they prefer, they've always wanted experienced people. And then you have kind of more junior people who come in who might do some, you know, updating of what we call a safety data sheet, which is essentially uh, a tool used for communicating, um, you know, hazards and aspect of uh, composition of the product up and down, uh, up and down the supply chain or the life cycle of the product, essentially. But those people never actually learn no full compliance or registrations or anything like that. So we've okay. essentially seen this huge kind of schism between people who are have a high level of expertise and then people who just can't really, who wouldn't be able to do the job. And, and so is that not um, potentially concerning for companies then? If these super experienced people, like theoretically they're going to retire at some point, right? Like who's going to come through and fill, fill their shoes? essentially, or maybe go on to support these companies in these other uh, other countries who are now facing the regulation. How, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a huge challenge for a lot of companies over the past, you know, five or so years. I mean, we do see that, you know, there are big chemical players who fortunately are in a situation where they can provide a lot of training and development. You know, mm -hmm. actually learning this regulation, learning the, the processes that are involved, um, you know, I think the, the REACH document is something like 900 pages long. Learning all of this does take a long time. So, yeah, I mean, they have a lot of resources. You know, they have a regulatory team of, you know, 20 to 70, 100 people um, where everyone can kind of work together. But it's really like the smaller companies that might only have five, six, seven, eight people within the regulatory team in Europe, which really struggle because they just don't have that capacity. And this causes another problem because obviously if a lot of people work for these big companies and gain experience there, they've had the trading and development, obviously they're quite loyal to those organizations. So why might they move to a smaller company, which might have less resources? And uh, yeah, and then... How then can these smaller companies remain competitive in this space then? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to the actual management of that team and how they can approach the trading and development. So I have one client in particular that that's pretty much all they do. They train new people, mm -hmm. like their focus. Um, but obviously you need to have very experienced people within the team to actually do the job in the first place. So it can be difficult to have more experienced hires. Um, and then when it comes to training development for potentially even smaller companies, they might bring in external consultants to mm -hmm. training. In fact, I know some large players that have worked with external consultants to do training on various different regulations. Um, or the company just has to spend a lot of money outsourcing it to consultancy companies, which is what a lot of them do. Um, but when it actually comes to, say, like the registration of a product, um, a lot of companies work together through um, consortia 
basically, if they all have like the same substance within their portfolio that needs to get registered, then they'll all kind of band together to do a joint register. So does that mean that they're essentially sharing the talent then? Is that what you're saying? Um, to a certain extent. I mean, they're bearing the cost. So they'll kind of assign... It's expensive, isn't it? Yeah. It's like 300,000 euros. Well, one of the registrations, yeah, about 300,000 euros, which is why I was going to say about your point with the fine, mm. some companies will take a 50 grand hit on a fine versus spending 300,000 to register. That's, uh, yeah, maybe incentivizing the wrong thing there. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Um, I mean, if you think about it, it's not just spending 300000 to register. It's spending all the money on the people you need in place to get you into the place to be able to register, right? Yeah, which is why it can be very advantageous because like what one company in that, you know, one company might have a toxicologist, for example, that they can deal with the data gap analysis, the study monitoring, the risk assessment, and then eventually the advocacy for you know, when they register the product and another company might have, I don't know, like an ecotoxicologist or potentially they agree that, okay, you work with this consultant on this particular part, you work with this consultant on this particular part, and then we bring it all together. And that's how a lot of smaller companies um, kind of work together to do it. You know, it's basically through outsourcing, uh, which does become very expensive, um, essentially. Um, but then unless you are you know, a major player, you're just not going to have those resources, whether it's from mm -hmm. doing the work itself or training people. Um, so there are ways around it, but it, it's quite tricky. So we're in a very interesting time at the moment because um, now everyone's organized and there's a lot of candidates out there with experience. It's still difficult to find people, but there are candidates out there with more candidates with experience. We're now seeing companies try to predict what's going to happen. So Brexit did shock a lot of people, but uh, I work for with the Chemical Industry Association very closely, and their role is to lobby UK Parliament, um, UK government on chemical issues and regulatory issues. And they actually pushed the government to consider what Brexit um, impacts will have, basically. And so the UK have adopted their own REACH regulation. They've just adopted the European framework. But you've got other countries like Korea, well, that um, started in 2013, the, the registrations it ended in 2019. So it's still continuing, but that was a deadline. Now everyone's gearing up for Brexit and Turkey. So, you know, we're just talking about a handful of companies here and what there's over 115 countries um, probably worldwide. So there's a lot more of this space to come. And what are you seeing in terms of what these countries are doing with their regulations? Are they essentially following the European model or is it quite different? Yeah, Ben, it'd be good to take your input on this. But from what I can see, yeah, there's a it's taking a European model. China have adapted a very different approach from my understanding. Um, but, you know, naturally it's going to happen um, and they will be probably less strict with stuff. Um, but yeah, they're just copying the European model. I know Korea Reach and um, uh, see, Turkey one is, is very similar. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. You know, I the way I've understood it is that a lot of the requirements will be similar. They've just adapted it for, you know, based on local requirements. So you can potentially use a lot of the data that was generated through studies on that substance to actually register the product in in not in a non-EU country, I would imagine. But it is something that 
I'm not 100% familiar with, if I'm very honest. Um, and there, there was a point I forgot about the, the consortia side. Um, so another way that, um, just coming back, the companies can actually get access to all the information or registration is actually through a letter of access um, as well. And that's essentially where, you know, they would get in contact with the company and say, hey, can we use all your data to register a product? So that also cuts down the cost a lot because a lot of companies will, whether they're competing or whether they have a different use for the same substance, like it will cut down the cost quite drastically for registering. Um, yeah. But even the big players ask for a letter of access from smaller companies. So, you know, it works both ways. So it, it has created quite a lot of, I wouldn't say collusion, that's completely the wrong word, a lot of collaboration. Um, you know, different companies, it's quite common. You know, I'll call up one company who supplies into another and, uh, you know, they, they will work quite closely together, which is, which is interesting to see. And a lot of these people, they all attend the same kind of conferences and everything. They all know each other, you know, so it, it, it is quite a strong community. But unfortunately, it is a bit of an aging community. At the moment. And I, I just wanted to come back to a point that you, you mentioned earlier, Ben, because I, I found it quite interesting and quite contradictory to my own thoughts on this matter. So you were saying that essentially these companies that are they're training and developing their own people essentially to, to take on these roles. Um, and th that creates a lot of brand loyalty and these people want to stay with their companies, which is obviously great for those companies. But in my mind, I would be thinking, okay, there's loads of other countries now um, introducing their own regulations. This is a candidate short market. market. These candidates can literally take their pick of companies to work for and maybe even countries to work in. Mm -hmm. So I find it interesting that they're staying with, with their companies. H how can these maybe more international company, companies or com companies in these other countries, how could they potentially um, leverage this, maybe follow the same model? Or do you think they could encourage these people to move to Korea or Turkey, for example? Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, well, I have seen people moving to other countries but you see the, the regulation because it's constantly changing constantly updating if there were say a candidate who's based in france wanted to go and deal with turkish regulations exclusively if they ever wanted to move back to france it would be quite difficult for them to integrate back into the regulation because a lot of things will have changed right um so they are kind of I don't want to say stuck because a lot of people really enjoy the challenge of working with this particular regulation, but you know, it, it can create a little bit of, you know, being quite boxed in and now, and again, because it's becoming more stringent, what we're seeing a lot of is candidates who are coming forward and be like, Hey Ben, um, do you think you might be able to help me switch industry? Uh-huh. Um, Which industry, like, out of this industry, back into pharma or something? Yeah. I mean, so we, you know, mostly I get solicited by reach uh, professionals for, especially in France, uh, it's mainly for, like, cosmetic sector, for medical device, for pharmaceutical. Um, now, obviously, we do have divisions that work within these specific areas, but obviously clients who use our services want specific skill sets. Mm -hmm. uh, which means that unfortunately we aren't able to help them transition. And I know a few candidates have been trying to do this for years now and even done courses and they still haven't been able to achieve that goal. Um, but I think when it comes to the actual 
when, when it comes to them staying within reach, there are other kind of career avenues which are opening up to people. So we are seeing a lot of people going down the more, like sustainable development routes, for example, okay. um, specializing only in advocacy. Um, and one which is more unique, um, which has been maybe the last three or four years we've seen, is basically what we call like a corporate or yeah, corporate regulatory manager or corporate product stewardship manager or something like that. And that's basically dealing with more of the strategic impacts of the, well, basically dealing with strategy, um, impact of the business. And they could also be dealing with internal processes. So companies who work very internationally, like they need someone on hand who, you know, where they do imports and exports, they're going to need someone who's understanding the key differences between the different regulations, how it will impact the business, and then work with people at more of an operational level on the actual day-to-day activities of making sure that they can import or export that substance. Um, mm-hmm. But also because a lot of companies can be quite dispersed globally, um, they're trying to improve um, communication links between the, the regulatory team in the US, the one in Europe and the one in China, for example. So there are other careers which are opening up to people, but yeah, it's um, it can be quite tricky for people to make that career move. Yeah. yeah, like career move for, for industry, you're saying, right? Yeah, for industry. Yeah, yeah, I sort of advise against it. I think the chemical sector is constantly expanding. You, know, you touched on the sustainability part, environmental sustainability, zero emissions. This is a growing area. Regulations come into that. There's a nice crossover, uh, particularly with circular economy growing um, as well. Um, but um, I advise moving against it. I mean, from a recruiter perspective, I think there's very few of us within the chemical recruitment sphere. Um, don't all now 50 companies set up in the chemical recruitment <laughs> area. But, um, yeah, we have found a bit of a niche. We've got some amazing talent here at Nonstop that, um, uh, that believe in the brand of the chemical sector. And so that's even doing very well in, for example, the US. Um, but uh, I think the pharmaceutical sector, for example, I think in many areas it's saturated. And the ones that are making success out of it within the regulatory sphere have been there for years. They've got the name where they can make the moves, uh, basically. And anybody, as you know, Ben, moving from the chemical sector regulatory-wise to the pharmaceutical sector, yeah, they're just going back 10 years and starting from scratch. So that also doesn't necessarily add up. We've had uh, had quite a few toxicologists um, who've moved into, moved away from chemical regulations into cosmetics. And within a year or two have contacted me again and said, you know, hey, um, this is a lot less interesting. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot less uh, technical, yeah. right? I mean, you, with, with cosmetics, so cosmetics, um, their regulation is quite, a lot of the substances they use are actually really, really bad. I mean, as soon as you open up a packet of makeup, you know, there's stuff that gets thrown into the air, which is really bad for the environment. Um, and someone who worked for the agrochemical sector was telling me, yeah, cosmetics are actually way worse than what we do. Um, cosmetics are worse than the chemicals we put on our crops and on the farms. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it works for the <laughs> yeah. environment. Like, I mean, obviously it's in smaller volume. Well, potentially not in smaller volumes. Um, but yeah, they, they are a lot worse. Um, but the thing is, they, when you want to get a cosmetics raw material or product registered, you're basically doing your cosmetic. Uh, you're, you're doing your dossier uh, based primarily 
on was it in vitro studies or um, yeah. or bibli um, what's it called research, uh, bibliographic research. That's it. So it's it's less technical. It's less fun. You're not launching you know studies which cut, where you have to design you know the study plan and you know interpret the results and kind of do a risk assessment. It's kind of like okay, this is what they said about this substance or this raw material. This is what they said about that. Let's put that in dossier. So it's a lot less exciting for toxicologists. So they actually, a lot we're seeing want to, you know, go back to work on the regulation. But, you know, people who do want to kind of change a little bit, you know, a lot of the companies we work with actually supply into different industries. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, I have a client and they do what we call a surfactant. And basically these surfactants are used in everything. Um, we also work with a minerals company. Again, minerals are used in everything, everything from, you know, baby powder to beer production, um, you know. So they do get exposure to other regulations and certainly some companies that do products, those people could expand further into like a biocides regulation or detergents regulation as well. So there are options open. It's just a case of you know, being in the right place at the right time, essentially, for a lot of these people. So, so what I'm hearing is there, there are loads of options for people. They're not just stuck once they get into reach. They're not just stuck there. There are loads of options for them to move and uh, expand their careers. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you guys see um, potentially happening over, over the next five or ten years in the space? People moving around, more roles created, more companies needing more talent. What, what do you guys think is going to happen? I think we're going to see a growth in regulations. I think that we're going to see more of a divide within Europe of countries wanting to push for their own um, guidelines or um, exemption lists. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, I think that there will also be a natural um, saturation to uh, of candidates as well You know, over the next 10 years. There's more and more people being added to this sphere, uh, basically. So it's still a nicheness, still, still, you know, if you're a candidate listening to this, you'll still be able to knock on a company's door and secure a position, you know, with some ease, as opposed to, you know, fighting against 10 people for a position, it might be two or three. Uh, whilst pharmaceutical sector is now that, you know, you have 40 applicants that are good, companies will select 10, and you're competing against 10, maybe five in the final round or maybe three in the final round, five in the second round, whilst in the chemical sector, it's not like that at all. Yeah, it's the same with like, you know, when I used to recruit in the cosmetic sector, I mean, most companies, you know, they probably receive around a couple hundred applications, you know, maybe about a hundred of them are actually relevant. And they have, they, they have the, the pick of the litter, basically. Um, whereas in the chemical sector, it's kind of like, you know, it's in-demand skill sets. And... You know, I think their jobs are becoming more diversified into particular specialisms within the regulation, um, which means that there can be different avenues for people to explore if they want. Um, you know, it's, it's all a case of, you know, having a chat with a recruiter who actually kind of knows the industry, knows the market, kind of understands what it is you do, what it is you're capable and how that might be able to transfer through to a particular requirement for, from a company. You know, and I think that's probably the best way of tackling it, really, because you know, I, I speak to clients day in, day out about specific requirements. I'm able to push flexibility for those specific requirements as well. Where I'm able yeah. to offer training and development for key skill sets, which might 
be lacking or there might be a shortage of. And then I'm able to speak to candidates about like where they might want to take their skill sets in the future and then see how we might be able to find a good match there. Um, now, obviously, there's always going to have to be compromise from both sides because it is a very candidate short market. There is um, skill set shortages at the moment, which you know I haven't seen you know since I started recruiting seven and a half years ago. Um, I mean, it seems really this year it's it, it is tricky, but the, the talent is out there, and I think the advice to clients is you know just be a bit flexible. And a lot of companies are quite flexible. You know, they understand the situation. Great. Okay. Flexibility is key then. Nice. Yeah. I mean, obviously they have to think of, uh, think about it within the limits of how they might be able to provide that training development or what tasks they might be able to outsource to a third party supplier or service provider. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that's a good note to, uh, to close this podcast then, unless there's uh, any final thoughts from either of you. No, anyone listening to this, you know, if you specialise within the area, give us a call. We'll be happy to give advice, even if you are securing your own position, but just need a chat um, and some guidance. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to the Nonstop Talent Show. If you want to be sure to catch the next episode, follow us on LinkedIn, Spotify, and iTunes. If you have any questions about the discussion today, or if you'd like to get involved in a future episode, contact us via email at podcast at nonstopconsulting.com If you'd like to hear more information about who we are and what we do, head over to www.nonstopconsulting.com